and this is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. On today's special election episode, I have James Stilwell from the University of Maryland reporting from Marrakesh, Morocco, with the COP22 negotiations. Also have Alex Gore and Wendy K. DeWeese talking about next year's National Adaptation Forum. And back is Tim Watkins with the Adaptation and Wine Power Hour. Please stick around. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Doug Parsons. So before we begin this episode, I have James Dilwell from uh, University of Maryland on, and I also have some folks from EcoAdapt to talk about the National Adaptation Forum. But I feel it's really important to sort of acknowledge what just happened. Podcasts aren't really that timely, but last week was the big presidential election, and I think what was shocking pretty much to everyone that Donald Trump won the election. America Daps isn't really a political animal, but the issue of climate change I recognize is very political. And to be perfectly honest, I created this podcast to focus on adaptation and adapting to climate change. Other people are talking about the sort of the broader issue of carbon emissions. And I, you know, I think as with most folks, I thought uh, Hillary Clinton was going to win. And so I was going to continue on with this podcast talking about how America is adapting to climate change and just share these really feel-good stories with everyone. But with the election of Donald Trump, I think it just throws a lot of things up in the air. We heard him talk about some pretty hostile things about climate change. And I obviously need to take this into account in how I cover the issue. I am still going to share stories of how people are adapting to climate change. I'm not going to be overly political, but I'm not going to be oblivious too. And if things get really hostile, I mean, we have to acknowledge those things and we need all the platforms that we can get to talk about climate change. And so I'm sort of making a pledge to my listeners that I'm going to incorporate this and then I'm going to factor in these things when I recruit guests to this podcast. And to be perfectly honest, I don't think a lot of us were very happy with how the, you know, Trump ran his campaign. It got really nasty. And so that's, it's reality though. He's the president elect. And I think if I have one takeaway from him, if I could learn anything from him, it's this concept of like, you know, appealing, you know, in a populist way to more Americans about what they're concerned with. And with America Daps, I bring on a lot of experts, but it's not necessarily a podcast I would expect a truck driver from Arkansas to listen to. And I'm not going to make my podcast for that demographic very often, but I would like to on occasion to have a guest on that might appeal to that kind of listener. I think all of us in conservation could sort of, you know, come up with better strategies on how we're going to communicate more wildly. Science communication is a very narrow orbit of people, and I think we need to just factor that in, in in what we do. And so I'm taking that to heart. I'm talking with people. How can I bring a more populist type message onto America DAPS, even as I bring on, you know, experts and PhD people on to talk? So that, I, I'm factoring that in. This was a big election. You can't ignore it. And this whole podcast is about the election and sort of, I've got James Stilwell. He's in Marrakesh, Morocco right now. I was able to get him on really quickly. He's been been there and he's telling me, well, in our discussion, he talked about what's happening there on the ground and that's what's coming up next. And I wanted to give you guys sort of like some timely information of what the rest of the world is thinking with the election of Donald Trump. And after that, I have some folks to talk about the National Adaptation Forum. Things are going to still go on, even if things get hostile with climate change policy. 
parts of the country are still moving ahead. And so people are going to talk about, uh, I've got Wendy K. Dewey's and Alex Gore to talk about the forum, which is this great big event that's happening next year. And so it's kind of an unusual episode. And I just, but I did want to acknowledge the election. It, it was a big deal. And so I think all of us have to kind of reflect on these things. And I'm still very excited about what's going on out there. And there's still going to be a lot of great work. But at the same time, we, we really might have to up our game in the next few years. And so, you know, please share with me, go, you know, go to the Facebook page or email me if you have ideas for guests, but I am going to start getting more creative with some of the guests that come on can appeal to more people. And next week I'm actually getting Michael Mann on the famous climatologist, the hockey stick uh, climatologist. I'm very excited about that interview and I think it's going to be very timely with the election. So stay tuned for that. But um Still very excited, and I, I just want to thank all my listeners out there, but I did want to acknowledge the election. It was a big bomb going off. And so on that note, please stick around and listen in on what's going on over in Marrakesh and also what's happening here in the States on adaptation. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to America Adapts, the climate change podcast. This is Doug Parsons, and I have a very special spot here on America Adapts. James Stilwell, the program manager of climate imitation at the University of Maryland, is back on the episode. Hey, James, how are you? Hey, Doug, how are you? Thanks for having me back. This is what I consider my election episode after last week's big earthquake. And can you tell the listeners where you're at right now? Yes, so I am at the uh, UN Climate Conference in Marrakesh. It's the 22nd meeting of the Conference of the Parties and really following up from last year's big Paris agreement at uh, that climate conference. So this one's called the uh, COP of Action, which is essentially to move forward not on any big agreement of the scale that we had Paris last year. That was obviously uh, a huge accomplishment. And now just thinking about how we're going to move forward on implementing it um, across the width and breadth of all of societies and within sectors, among countries. Uh, so very much a different tone of the COP from last year. And then obviously uh, the news that came out last week changes the tone a little bit more still. Um, but there's been a lot of great energy and momentum here on the ground. So I look forward to talking about that in a little bit further details we move forward here well yes and so there was this political earthquake last week and I'm, yeah. just, I'm just curious what were you thinking climate change wise the moment you realized it was going to be president-elect trump what went through your head yeah well what went through my head was just essentially thinking of what uh, trump the candidate had said uh, on the campaign trail which was to really largely deride the u.s's climate commitments and actions domestically with things like the clean power plan, but then also in terms of our engagement in international agreements like the Paris Agreement, uh, whereas we had the other candidate, uh, Hillary Clinton, who was openly committed to carrying these agreements forward and making sure that we were doing everything at the country level to make sure that they were successful. So um, certainly from a climate perspective, there was uh, some <laughs> concerns and questions there, uh, to say the least, when um, it became clear that it was going to be President-elect Trump. And those questions and concerns are still uh, very active and very much working themselves out. I mean, here we are less than a week out from the election. Uh, that's still been an adjustment and interesting to land as it did um, in, you know, the second day of the COP was when we the U.S. election was. And then folks in Marrakesh woke up that next next morning on Wednesday to the news that it was going to be Trump. 
And if you want to learn more about this, actually, I would recommend something that was uh, put forth by the director of the Center for Global Sustainability, where I work, uh, Nate Haltman. He uh, just did a real quick segment on uh, what does it look like for now that we have President-elect Trump uh, in terms of the U.S.'s climate commitments. And we'll emphasize uh, one thing that I mentioned earlier and and that he uh, – Dr. Hartman does a good job of explaining, which is that um, we know what the candidate Trump has said on the campaign trail, but we don't know um, what it'll mean in terms of once he gets into office, what he will actually do or not do with respect to the Paris Agreement and other actions that the Obama administration has taken on climate. Um, we've already seen even just in the past week that Trump has started to walk back some of his remarks on, you know, unilaterally or, or uh, comprehensively repealing the Affordable Care Act, that some pieces of that might be worth retaining and and not something to repeal whole scale. So how would this play out with respect to the Clean Power Plan or the Paris Agreement um, is still a, a big question and concern that we're all trying to figure out as well. So, James, folks uh, might not have listened to your longer podcast that you did. With yeah. me. Could you just briefly say, why are you there? What is University of Maryland doing there? Just uh, people are probably like, what, what, what are you there representing and everything? Sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So we are here um, through the Center for Global Sustainability and to represent the larger university in terms of very much the sector, the, the university and research uh, institutional sector of um, working on making sure that the Paris Agreement and just climate action in general is robust from the perspective of universities and research institutions. And by that, I mean something that hopefully shades, uh, sheds some light on and gives some hope to uh, how things will move forward in this President-elect Trump world, which is that the Paris Agreement uh, was so successful and, and so unprecedented in so many ways from what we had uh, accomplished before in the climate movement uh, because it, it drew a lot of its strength from working across and among sectors. So it wasn't just something that happened through the UN process and was agreed to by governments, although officially that is you know what we see on paper in the Paris Agreement, but that drew a lot of support from all the work that was being done across all these various actors in society. So if you think back to the People's Climate March in 2014, which um, gave gave a lot of momentum and strength to the climate summit in 2014 that in turn laid the groundwork for the Paris Agreement. Uh, you see all these actors from civil society, from uh, academia, you, academia, you see the business sector, um, finance and foundations communities, all saying with a pretty resonant universal voice that it's important that the world act and be ambitious on climate. And that was what gave the Paris Agreement so much of its strength, which is also why the Paris Agreement is not dependent on any one single country's actions or lack thereof. So while the questions and concerns about what might happen with uh, the U.S.'s role moving forward in the Paris Agreement are certainly rife and uh, causing uh, some a lot of conversations and and some shock and surprise here in Marrakesh. It's not to the point where we are feeling like, oh, the Paris Agreement isn't still a strong agreement because it very much is. Do you get to interact with any of the, sort of the U.S. government representatives there? I mean, have you talked with them about what's sort of going on? 
Uh, so this is actually, uh, we're closing out on my um, first day here at um, Marrakesh. And so um, uh, I have not directly engaged with any of the U.S. government uh, representatives here today. I've been connecting with, um, so the dean of the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland is um, Robert C. Orr, and he is also the special advisor to the U.N. Secretary General on climate. And um, I've connected with him and then our director, Nate Haltman, and essentially just discussing what these concerns and questions are and then what that means for uh, a lot of what we've started to try and suss out over the past week in terms of, you know, you can see a lot of questions and tentative answers in the in the press about uh, what would it actually look like um, if the U.S. were to pull out of the Paris Agreement. And, and so that's been, there's been rumblings about that certainly here in Marrakesh, but then also just thinking about, all right, what are we going to do to keep the conversation moving forward of what we would have done um, uh, going into Marrakesh regardless, which is very much to make this the cop of action and, and to decide how we are going to implement the Paris Agreement in all sectors. So uh, the Obama administration obviously is the official negotiators there on the ground, but sometimes, you know, there's an emissary from, you know, transition government. Did you hear of the Trump uh, administration sending an emissary? Do you think they would do such a thing? Yeah, I, I have not heard anything to that effect. As far as I know, there is not one. Uh, so right now we're, we have um, Jonathan Pershing is the uh, lead negotiator on the U.S. side for climate. I saw him here walking uh, in the hallways of uh, the Marrakesh Climate Conference. But um, to my knowledge, there is no emissary from um, the Trump team. You had mentioned a little bit about what people are thinking on the ground there, but have you had those side conversations? Are people from France coming up to you and going, what the hell just happened? I mean, have you had any of those conversations yet? <laughs> yeah, I mean, very informally. Uh, and, you know, we there's just so many questions right now that you know we we can't even answer definitively no one really can um but yeah those certainly informal discussions among that i um i do want to say uh, very clearly that i am not in the closed door negotiations that are happening with you know the us negotiator than others from other countries um so i don't know what is happening behind those closed doors at least not directly but yeah there have certainly been questions as you know what what the heck did just happen and and what do we do now but you said there's still a relatively positive vibe that you guys need to sort of forge ahead on this though yeah and and that's what gives me um a lot of hope uh moving forward and what makes me all the prouder of what the global community was able to accomplish with the Paris Agreement, which was to to create this agreement that has the support not just of governments, but of all sectors of society, so that it's it's really cross-hatched with a lot of durable stakeholders saying, we want this, we need this, this is not something that is limited to the strength of any one government or individual. And so you know, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of different folks just anecdotally say, you know, all right, now this means we just scale up our efforts even more. And uh, in some cases, uh, it might mean that certain sectors now uh, assume a greater role of prominence than they might already otherwise have had. Um, so if you think about, for example, the business sector, like they might be uh, a sector that would be all the more engaged in implementing the Paris Agreement and, and picking up perhaps some of the slack that the U.S. might have taken in, in leading the charge and making sure it was implemented. Um, civil society sector, certainly, um, to keep 
to keep the ambition and the um, action and, and pressure moving forward to make sure that the Paris Agreement is successful. One thing that from the perspective of University of Maryland and the Center for Global, Global Sustainability that we are doing, um, which was already uh, in the works, uh, moving into the COP and before the election, and now we haven't lost any traction in terms of taking it forward is um, on this coming Thursday, uh, we will be launching a new initiative called Research for Climate Action, which is very much covering the uh, universities and research institutional community to make sure that they are both networked closely among each other and also networked with uh, decision makers in their respective countries and around the world so that we have a continuous flow of information that's being generated by climate analysts and researchers that can then directly feed decision making, not just in governments, but certainly yes, and not just in public policy, but certainly yes, but also um, what the business community do- then does to act on that knowledge and civil society and then and then other research institutions. So, um, so we're very excited for that uh, launch of that event um, this coming Thursday here um, in Marrakesh, and uh, folks are welcome to read up about it online, uh, researchforclimateaction.org. And uh, so just using that as an example and being very proud to, to note that we didn't miss a beat on moving forward with that. It wasn't like, oh, this election happened, so now we just scrap everything and try and start, start all over. It was rather more a thought of, oh, the election happened. This is a different result than uh, we had expected and a lot of people had hoped for. But now that makes our work all the more important and we want to make it all the more powerful and impactful and successful. Well, James, um, I have a couple more questions for you, and I'm going to pivot away from Marrakesh for a moment, if I may. So you had uh, the ability, and this is going to be, I think, very fascinating for a lot of folks and maybe kind of concerning, is that the person in charge of the transition at the Environmental Protection Agency is an individual named Myron Ebel, who's been a longstanding climate change skeptic. And you actually were able to debate him, and this is available on YouTube. And so I think this would be very interesting to a lot of folks. And, you know, I know you have to be careful. You're representing University of Maryland, but I think your insight on sort of his worldview about climate change, what that might mean, this man might become the EPA administrator. And I'm sure when you were debating him, that was probably the farthest thing from your mind. But just any insight that you can give people about, okay, you know, and he has a long record, I think, in Washington, D.C., but uh, please, just uh, your thoughts on that. And what, 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 what did you think when you first read that he was involved? Definitely a surprise. Uh, hadn't heard a lot of word or news about him since, uh, since I did that debate, actually. And then, um, to see him crop back up in the media as, uh, leading the transition, uh, for the Trump administration, uh, was definitely a surprise. It made me think, though, in terms of what this might actually mean for how wise it is for us to think about whether it is a Trump or Clinton administration, I was giving a Trump administration moving forward to think about what it means, uh, to, to have a perspective on what the U.S.'s commitments are going to be environmentally and climate wise moving forward that, that only draws on a specific area of, of action. So historically, so, so Myron Abel is affiliated with the um, Competitive Enterprise Institute, um, which historically was funded by ExxonMobil, and now its funding isn't disclosed, but uh, affiliated with Coke Industries. And 
not necessarily one that is th- these affiliations are, are usually focused on a, a very narrow slice uh, of the I mean, historically very important, but a very uh, narrow slice of what we're thinking about going forward in terms of what the energy sector will look like. So more so focused on um, fossil fuels, oil, gas, et cetera, and, and not so much focused, obviously, on renewables such as wind and solar, really quite a different emphasis in terms of uh, Myron Abel's affiliations uh, through his past involvements. And that could be cause for some concern in terms of, well, what does that mean for U.S. commitments? But it also hopefully might give us pause to think, okay, how realistic is it to leave out consideration of these other areas of the energy sector that are only growing in strength and importance and competitiveness? So, um, you know, thinking about even Trump's own interest in building infrastructure, uh, in making businesses strong uh, in the United States, having homegrown business solutions and jobs. Uh, if, if we're neglecting or even ignoring what the power of the renewable energy sector can do um, for those goals, then we're leaving a lot on the table. We're, we're essentially ceding competitive edge that we might have to other countries that have already picking up, taken up the charge on this and uh, really was what gave a lot of strength to the Paris Agreement in terms of the business sector really saying, okay, we support the Paris Agreement because we recognize how important uh, diversified energy portfolios are um, moving forward in, in the future. And even thinking about how the Paris Agreement was structured, it was um, developed through all of these different countries putting forth um, what are called intended nationally determined contributions, which is a very, uh, very much a mouthful way of saying that countries directly said, this is what we will do as our role in implementing the Paris Agreement. So that it was very much something that other countries could look at and emulate and imitate and build upon, et cetera. If the U.S. were to pull out of that, which Donald Trump had suggested on the campaign trail, and now again it's, you know, it's a question mark of what that will look like, then it's essentially you're just saying to, to businesses that they don't know what to expect from the United States. So, for example, when situations like Superstorm Sandy might come up, it's hard to know what the U.S.'s response would, might be. And therefore, I mean, Businesses don't really like that uncertainty. So you're dealing with a stakeholder where you're not really sure what their future actions will be. So, you know, I take sort of the long view at a more complex perspective um, that hopefully uh, is is a source of long term optimism in terms of what how realistic it is in terms of what might be able to be accomplished in uh, an energy transition that is only focused on the fossil fuel sector and is is perhaps considering uh, limiting the U.S.'s engagement in these international agreements. Well, I'm very encouraged that you're doing what you're doing, James, because you're very grounded and you don't seem like a hair-on-fire kind of guy. So th- <laughs> thank you for that. And do you feel like you left your debate with uh, – it, it's Abel or Ebel? How do you pronounce that last name? I believe it's Abel, yeah. Did, did, were you friendly? How did it go? Uh, it was – very much, as I recall, it, a civil, cordial uh, debate. Um, you know, one thing that is always uh, can be a concern with these types of debates, uh, 
at that time, even then, this was, I think it was in May of 2014, when I recorded that, uh, it, it already felt like a rather dated conversation to be discussing, you know, whether or not climate change was or wasn't real and whether or not it was or wasn't caused by human activity. And, and I remember my, my engagement in that debate as being very much one of, of pivoting the conversation so that it's not, it's almost sort of outdated to be discussing whether or not this is or isn't happening, but rather what are we going to do about it and why is it not only important, but actually a, a tremendous opportunity for us to do something about it so that we can bounce back even stronger and, and create more jobs and create more economic opportunity and, and rather than, and then get stuck in the old arguments. So, um, so that was how I approached it. And, there was, there's always sort of a concern when you go into these discussions that you're just giving more energy to the other side or, or to another side of, you know, keeping us stuck in the old conversation and the old argument of whether or not this is even happening. But if, if these are still questions on people's minds, then hopefully you can provide an answer to them, but also then say, all right, if we acknowledge as we you know, as I said on the debate, you know, 97% of climate scientists acknowledge that this is real and it's caused by human behaviors. You don't just get stuck there, but then think about what are we going to do and how is this actually a great chance to, to create real, real positive change, which I think the Paris Agreement very much picked up the baton on. And I think that let alone what it does to our international reputation or to what we will have, uh, what our comparative advantage will be um, economically by if we were to leave the Paris Agreement. But think about uh, how we, we are essentially we would be missing a great opportunity. And uh, and that's how I tried to approach it. Now, of course, with hindsight, it, it takes on a little bit new, a new cast that I hope that um, we can still keep our jets cool about and just think about, again, the energy that I'm so excited to be picking up here on in Marrakesh. And then from what I'm reading about what's still going on back in the U.S. is just people taking this as a cue. OK, we've got to redouble our efforts. Uh, we've got to make sure that all of our other actions in other sectors behind, besides the federal government are strong. So when we're thinking about what we're doing at the city level, what we're doing at the state level, what we're doing at the business level, civil society, keeping those strong. And that's sort of the long view that I think provides a nice, a, a, a broader perspective than just who's leading an energy transition or what his thoughts are on climate or, or what can or can't be accomplished in terms of the U.S.'s engagement in international agreements. It's, it's like a climate change back to the future when you think about your conversation yeah. with this guy. Yeah. So I have one more question that I want to get off. I didn't want to take any more of your time. You've got important things to do. But you talked about reputation, the United States' reputation. We have a unique place in the world, but I'm curious that the, if we were to pull out in a substantial way, obviously that would be demoralizing i'm just a two-part question one let's say in four years we have another sort of liberal president come in would it be easy enough to jump back into um the fully participating and if we do pull out in the next few years do you feel like there's another country that would take sort of a natural leadership role in all this oh wow that's a very good question doug and and i'll answer it first by discussing uh some of what has been already sort of brooded about in the media of what it would look like for the U.S. to pull out. One idea that has been suggested is that the Trump administration would pull 
the United States entirely out of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Um, so not just the Paris Agreement, but the entire infrastructural body that that created the Paris Agreement or that agreed to the Paris Agreement. That has been one suggestion, unprecedented. Um, another is if we were to just pull out of the Paris Agreement, that would be the, the the way the Paris Agreement was written was that that couldn't even happen until three years from now, um, so November 4th of 2019, and then it would be a year-long process before such a rescission was finalized. So when you think about it, that essentially um, would carry the United States through to the end of, almost to the end of the um, Trump administration, you know, assuming it's one term, but again, one never knows. Uh, so that what it would look like for the U.S. to then re-engage in that process. Um, I honestly couldn't comment on. Uh, I don't know then uh, what it would look like for us to then pick that back up. The time horizon is such that you, when you think about it, it almost starts to seem irrelevant because uh, the the way that the Paris Agreement I mean, we're not even a year out from its being agreed to. It was December 12th of last year, and it was such a swift um, ratification and entry into force process. I mean, for for all of the countries that signed it uh, to have done so by, uh, gosh, I, for, I forget the date, but it was sometime uh, this spring or summer um, when the threshold had been reached for countries to sign it in terms of, you know, when it was then uh, able to enter into force by November 4th um, of this year is such a rapid adoption of an agreement that it's almost like this unstoppable, unstoppable machine now. So thinking four years ahead in the future, I mean, it, it's uh, honestly for me difficult to speculate. I would wonder how much even more so it would be an unstoppable machine by that point. Again, not wanting to paint too rosy a picture in terms of the sense that this is definitely something that we should be attentive on and concerned about and and reminding folks both in the transition team, but then also throughout sectors of how important of an agreement this is for the United States to remain competitive internationally and domestically and that uh, it's not something to be taken lightly to just exit it and, and then to, to, to really emphasize the real concrete effects of, of how that quick process of being approved and entering into force, how much that would change what it would mean for the United States not just in terms of participating in a national agreement, but for um, for what we would do in all of these different sectors that gave so much momentum for the agreement to be able to be approved in the first place. I mean, there'd be a lot of answers um, to all these different sectors from businesses to civil society who would say, hey, look, we really want this and we will be very frustrated and very upset and very much not as interested in potentially other areas of engagement if the U.S. is going to pull out of the Paris Agreement. So, again, there's a lot of questions, some of which I and perhaps almost nobody at this point could answer. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's uh, definitely something that we want to make sure to remain vigilant about and, and, and keep reminding our leaders, both in the government and in the transition um, team and then throughout society, of how important this agreement is and what it actually means on the ground moving forward beyond just a specific climate target, but what that means for what actions economies would take and other stakeholders. 
that was a great explanation, James. I appreciate it. So I don't want to take any more of your time. I want you to go out and have a good time on, in in Morocco and go <laughs> talk to folks and go hopefully you know with other countries let them know that there's still quite a few folks that want to make this thing happen. But uh, I feel very encouraged that people like you are over there. And you know, if any final words you want to give you know Americans saying that uh, you know I think you walked through a lot that it's it's not like over right now, but you know it, it is. We should be very concerned, and but I think you sort of explained that it's not, you know, instant. So in, any final thoughts before I let you go? Just to say that I hope that um, we take this uh, result as uh, essentially reiterating what I said earlier as as cause for, as you know, I mean, Wednesday was definitely uh, for a lot of folks in the climate community a difficult day to see to think about what the world would look like moving forward and and how we were going to continue to carry forward the Paris Agreement and, you know, actions in the United States and abroad. But then to to take that hopefully as a charge to to become more vigilant and become um, more vocal and more active, both with our engagement with government and our engagement with the new administration, but also um, with our engagement among the other sectors that were so important to making the Paris Agreement, first of all, be agreed to, and then to to start to see um, success throughout society. And I feel like if if we can keep that in mind, Trump has said, you know, actually, I was as I was um, preparing for our conversation, uh, I I noticed that back before um, the Copenhagen uh, climate conference in 2009. Trump had actually signed on to uh, some sort of an open letter that was encouraging businesses to to act on climate in Copenhagen because it was in uh, it was from a good business sense of of what we should do and you know if if we can show as is the case that that the U.S.'s climate commitments make good business sense then you know that's there's all the more reason that. Uh, we can keep pressure on our leaders to to fulfill um, the spirit of the Paris Agreement and then show that, you know, this isn't just something that's being agreed to because we are concerned about our climate, although we are. But uh, also, this is something that would be foolish to pull out of for so many other reasons that just make sense. And so if we can keep that in mind and keep raising our voices and keep keep acting, I think that that gives me a lot of hope moving forward um, for what we can accomplish on climate. Okay, very positive message. And again, thank you, just listeners, once again. James is uh, calling in from Marrakesh, Morocco, and he took time out of his very busy schedule to uh, share his insights on, obviously, what is a very important issue and how the election has affected all that. So, yes, James, go out, go have a good time, and go get some good Moroccan food on my behalf. So, but <laughs> Thanks so much, Doug. <laughs> Appreciate you having me today, and, and I wish you a lot of luck. I mean, you're sharing this uh, message with the world and with your listeners is just so important. And, again, I'm honored to participate again. Awesome. All right, everybody, this is America Daps, a climate change podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to America Adapts, the climate change podcast. I am your host, Doug Parsons. I have Alex Score and Wendy K. DeWeese. Hi, guys. Hello. <laughs> Sorry, we're going to have we're gonna have plenty of that. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you guys are from EcoAdapt, right? Yes, we are from EcoAdapt. EcoAdapt is a nonprofit um, with the main focus of building the field of climate adaptation. 
Excellent. I go back a little, a little ways with EcoDaptin. So the listeners from last week will probably recognize, you know, Laura Hansen and Jenny Hoffman, who has a history with EcoDapt. I can't get rid of you people. You keep showing up on my podcast. I'm not sure what I'm doing wrong. But anyway, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Exactly. Thank you. Well, listen, I don't want to go any farther than without recognizing the sort of earthquake that happened last week. This is not a political podcast. And I'm not here to sort of dump on anything, but I think we all recognize. But if we want to chat a little bit about that, and I think it's going to fit nicely into our discussion about the National Adaptation Forum, which will be the topic today. But it, I think now more than ever how important these kind of things are. But, yeah, pretty shocking week, huh, guys? Very shocking. Um, it's been a, it's been an interesting week, um, for folks working in climate change. I think we're a little bit shocked, but I, it makes it more important now than ever to really start, um, pushing for climate adaptation. And it's, um, adaptation is, you can, you don't even need to talk about climate change. We can actually continue doing the work that we're doing without even having climate change in the, in the forefront. If that's what it's going to take, you know, we survived, um, many other years, um, when the administration did not believe in climate change. So I think that more than ever is it important for us to have these discussions um, working together as a coalition to start um, putting adaptation in the forefront. And that's, you know, that's I think that we will rally together to make sure that happens, Doug. Um, I actually think it's going to bring us many opportunities as well as challenges. But I think that if we look at it in the positive lens, there's actually a lot of work, good work that's being done. And that work will continue to be done. I think you make a great point, and to be quite honest, the last couple of days, I think we've all been reflecting on it, and it's, you know, we think we've made so much progress under President Obama, and we have, but in some ways, I feel like the whole movement has gotten a little bit complacent, and maybe this is that opportunity where, you know, especially adaptation kind of stepping up, and what is our role in this larger climate change discussion? I'm trying to find some silver linings, but I think, I think that's a, a realistic path forward. Could not agree more. Could not agree more. And I think this is actually maybe will push us to do even more work, um, work closer together, more collaboratively so that we can extend, you know, research and um, climate funding dollars. Um, so I, I actually see a civil silver lining as well. And um, an EcoAdapt, of course, helping with the National Adaptation Forum in bringing people together to have those critical discussions will be even more important now in 2017 and moving forward. We're going to get into a little bit later about how federal employees can attend this conference. I don't want to get too much into that, but I, I, I do want to offer some of my own observations when I was a Fed and I missed the first adaptation forum because of these kind of events. So we'll, we'll get into that to a little bit. But just so everyone knows, and I want to acknowledge the election, that's a big deal. And then on future podcasts, I'm going to be talking to guests in more depth about that issue. And it might actually change the sort of like overall, you know, structure of the podcast. But, you know, the way these podcasts works, we're, we're, we're trying to be timely here with the National Adaptation Forum. And so just need to acknowledge that. But the National Adaptation Forum is this great event that happens every two years. And so... I just want to throw it back. I don't know if this is you, Alex, but just we'll dig really into this in much deeper detail. But just quickly, what is the National Adaptation Forum? Well, thank you for asking. Well, the National Adaptation Forum is really a gathering of adaptation practitioners. Every two years, um, it's a place where we folks can share their lessons learned, um, create new networks, share their different tools, different research, different findings, and learn from one another throughout all of sectors. The first National Adaptation Forum um, started in 2013, um, and now this will be our third um, event that will take place May 9th 
through the 11th in St. Paul. So we're really excited about it. I had a conversation. I've, I've forgotten the exact details. And Laura Hansen, the, the executive director of EcoDAP, why is it called the Form and not the National Adaptation Conference? Do you know? <laughs> I do know. Wendy, can you want to take a stab at that? And then I will. I, will. I do know. Um I have a feeling, to be fair, though, Alex, um, that you probably have, uh, I believe this was a CEQ issue originally. So if you want to go into more detail with that, that would be lovely. Well, it's it's not a conference per se, because it is, like I said, a gathering of folks coming together. Um, it is a forum where we wanted to really gather um, adaptation practitioners together in one place. Um, that had never happened before. There's a lot of climate conferences out there, but nothing like the forum that it's multi-sectoral, trying to make it as holistic as possible and as cross um, sectoral as possible so that different folks are talking to each other. So we have ag talking to the um, the built environment, the natural resources, talking to the city community planners, the tribal folks talking to um, different folks in, in the room. So it, that was the intent. So a conference means that you are just there to um, share information. A forum is really where you gather practitioners and that people can share um, stories and lessons learned. And then and create that support network. That's what we heard in 2013, that a lot of people working in the field of adaptation felt very lonely, did not have a support network of people where they could, you know, share lessons learned. And that was what happened in 2013, that that network was created. And those bonds are only getting stronger as we move forward. And Wendy K., do you want to add to that? No, I think you did an absolutely perfect job. Um, it, as Alex mentioned, it's far more interactive than a conference where you're being spoken to and where you have an opportunity to be involved in trainings and workshops and take away really great adaptation information. And again, creating those strong networks that didn't exist before has been really fantastic for the adaptation community. I have to say it's larger, stronger, and more well-connected than ever before. And I believe that this forum is supporting those uh, adaptation, you know, the adaptation community at large through this event every two years. Okay, listeners out there, if you are listening, you're just sitting there on your smartphone, it, the website, and it might just be useful to you to kind of look at the website as, as we're having this conversation, and it's nationaladaptationforum.org. Is, is that correct? Yes. Okay, yeah, just, you know, we'll, we'll be talking. It might be useful to you. All right, just some feedback really quickly. Uh, looking at the website, there are no photos of Minnesota. you got to give them something to rope them in to come to Minnesota. You know, wh- where are the photos? Wendy, <laughs> can I take that? <laughs> That is an excellent point. You thought point. this was going to be a you. softball interview. Come on. <laughs> well, we, I have to say we did have more photos on the website earlier, and we have great real estate on our website, and we definitely need to be um, highlighting our wonderful, amazing host city partners. The city of St. Paul has been absolutely amazing, and uh, that that's duly noted. Thank you so much. All right. I'm going to be perfectly blunt here. When I'm thinking Minnesota, I'm thinking Midwest boring but i know deep down there are some really interesting things there and so some photos of you know those the the lakes there and i think the city's just a world-class city so yeah it would be helpful for more visual you know people to kind of rope them in so just some feedback that's great if you go to the logistic um menu bar of the natural adaptation forum site you will see some photos there and the incredible place that we're having the forum which is at the river center the river center is a green building so we're really happy to have a sustainable green building to host the forum this year which was also did not happen in 2013 and 2015 so we have moved um leaps and bounds to ensure that we are actually having the forum in a 
green building um, certified. And also we are in an eco district. So there is a lot to do downtown St. Paul. So um, I do welcome you to look at the logistics place um, link to our website. It talks about the venue and about self-guided tours, about the eco district and all the wonderful things that can happen in the Twin Cities. Um, so we are very, very fortunate to um, be working with both the cities um, of St. Paul and um, and Minneapolis in making this happen. So we're very excited. Now, why did you pick St. Paul? I mean, there, there's those reasons there, but was there any sort of broader reason that you, you chose St. Paul? Yeah, we looked at both cities. Yeah, we looked at both cities and we, we really are so excited about the adaptation activities taking place in Minnesota in general. It, it's pretty amazing and we wanted to take this opportunity to take these great activities at a state level and obviously raise them to a national level. And in touring Minneapolis, we loved the downtown core district. We thought it was great, but Unfortunately, the venues that we were looking at were still creating kind of a divided forum where we had uh, the first forum in 2013, we had four floors that you had to attend different sessions. And in 2015, we had two floors. And we thought we really want this to be a very cohesive event where everyone gathers in one place for your sessions, for your plenaries, for your networking. And we ended up finding the River Center, the convention center in St. Paul. And it was just kind of too good to pass up. It's just as as Alex already mentioned, it's the first convention center in the world to be LEED certified, Green Globes and Apex and AT or ASTM, excuse me, certified. And they're just an incredibly sustainable venue. And we were able to secure then accommodations within walking distance, five to 10 minutes around the venue. So we thought this is a great opportunity also in St. Paul for people to get out and see our host city. And in years past, the event was held at a hotel, so people stayed at the hotel and attended the forum, and it did not provide as much opportunity to really get out and see our host city. So this is a complete departure for us, and we're really excited about it. And it sits right along the Mississippi River, so it's really a beautiful venue as well. Oh, I saw the one photo. It does look gorgeous. And I would expect, especially with some of your partners with the University of Minnesota, that you know the St. Louis location was great, but I would imagine that you're going to get a lot more local participation just based on everything that Minnesota is, like you said, doing on adaptation. So I mean, I'm sure that was appealing to you as, as you're looking for a sponsor that the locals who can afford to go, they're, gonna, they're probably going to show up in, in greater numbers than in Missouri, which doesn't necessarily have a... a know as as much experience doing this topic so well we're pretty excited the minnesota climate adaptation partnership conference it's kind of a long name we like to call it mcap took place last january and i had the pleasure of attending the event and it was amazing and we talked with them over the summer and they have agreed to hold their convening on the first day of the forum so the minnesota climate adaptation event will be taking place concurrently on the first day of the forum they have a wonderful mix of adaptation practitioners from across the state in all different sectors. And so they'll be representing the state very well. And we, for the first time, are offering a one-day pass for this particular event. Anyone who attends the Minnesota event will also be able to attend all of the forum sessions. So we're really excited. And yes, there is great enthusiasm from our uh, host city and host state like we've never had before. So Cool. Well, I'm excited. St. Paul, I've never been there. I've been in Minneapolis, but never got over to St. Paul. So that's exciting. Okay, Alex, here's a question for you. So if you could kind of give maybe an overview of some of the things that, you know, people submit topics for these forums and conferences and, you know, what are some of the topics, what are some of the themes of the the forum and, you know, kind of walk through that, just kind of give people a better sense of what what they're uh, going to be, uh, I guess, learning and interacting with when they get there. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So we put out a call for proposals um, for our symposia, and that was closed on October 14th. So thus far, we have a lot of sessions already proposed, and they range in terms of topics from um, natural resources management to urban adaptation to public health, transportation. This year, we have the first topic on talking about retreat. I know it's a, it's um, a topic that not a lot of adaptation practitioners um, have expressed a lot of joy about talking about, but we do it. have sessions um, uh, about what does it mean to do retreat, to actually have to retreat and move some communities. Another new topic that we have is business chain supply um, and demand, which I think is huge. Of course, we have the, the regulars like insurance and risk management, the tribal indigenous track. One of the focuses this year also is about at, um, equity equitable adaptation and what does that mean? So equity is actually a cross-cutting theme throughout all of these issues. So we want to ensure that we're making the 2017 National Adaptation Forum as equitable as possible. We actually have a equity working group that is really working hard and trying to ensure that we have that diversity even within the forum. And what does that mean? There's a lot of community members, um, faith-based organizations that are actually doing adaptation, but they might not see themselves as adaptation practitioners. But Others need to learn from them and, you know, and they need to have a voice in the forum. So we are actually trying to fundraise to ensure that we get more community members um, involved within the forum and that can participate so that we increase that diversity. So that has been also um, one of our focuses this year. But we're very, very excited. Um, and one of the other things that we have gotten thus far, Doug, which is very good to see, is that we have proposals from every region. Um, including the Pacific Islands, um, which is huge, and 50 sessions already in the international arena. We've had a lot of interest from international partners to learn from the U.S. about what we're doing in adaptation and also share their lessons learned so we can learn from them. So we have been working really hard with those partnerships as well. So. You might have to change it to the International Adaptation Forum. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not uh, yet, but we do welcome our international partners for sure. Okay, a couple things, some observations there. I, I love that topic of retreat. I'm, I'm a native Floridian, and that's just a conversation that's not happening enough. So I, I'm very curious on how that's going to be structured and what sort of presentations are around that. And what you said, just the outreach to maybe non-traditional people. You know, I was actually contacted by someone from the – a Unitarian Church in Auburn, Alabama. You're you're listening out there. Thanks for doing that. And so apparently, the podcast was shared on this national Unitarian Church um, newsletter network. And the reason I'm mentioning that, if you are out there listening, the Unitarians have been great on environmental issues. And so I would encourage them to you know check out the forum. Maybe this is something you know a lot of them have very active green groups that this is something that you need to get you know i guess more involved in learn more about adaptation so please i encourage you for those kind of non-traditional audiences my next question is uh, just sort of a follow-up okay is there anything different about this forum than previous ones and i think you've sort of touched upon some things that are a little bit different but do you feel like okay as you approached developing this form what are we going to do different or what are we going to do better i mean can, can you kind of share those thoughts Absolutely. And I think that this was brought up in the previous podcast, but 
we heard from forum practitioners that they wanted um, more plenaries, a place that folks could gather in one room and actually share some stories together. So this forum, we are very happy to announce that we have five confirmed plenaries and we're working on a sixth plenary. And the only reason we're able to do this is because the River Center has amazing space and will actually be able to accommodate us to have those daily plenaries. So we're going to open the forum with a municipal plenary um, with a welcome from the mayor. Also, we will have a community plenary where we talk about community-based adaptation. There'll be a business plenary, um, a natural resources plenary, a holistic plenary, which um, we'll talk about what does a holistic adaptation mean. And now we're also working on that broader one, the international plenary about lessons learned from our international partners. So that is very new to the forum, and we're very excited that we will be able to put that together. Excellent. That's I guess that's a related question to Wendy Kay. And so you're involved with identifying sponsors. Is that right? Is that some, one of your major roles? That is one of my major roles. Absolutely. And we're looking to reach out to adaptation partners that may not have been viewed as traditional partners in the past. And the business or private sector is a group of them that we're definitely approaching in the Twin Cities area, as well as obviously our agency partners and geo partners um, and, and existing partners of the forum in the in years past. Well, I guess that's a follow-up question. Is it easier? I mean, in two years' time, I mean, that's like a lifetime in some ways with adaptation. It's such a new field. Do you feel like as you approach sponsors for the form that there's just a broader universe of people that you think could justify sponsoring it? Has it been easier? Or I mean, I know it's always difficult to get sponsorship, but do you just have doors opened in that time frame? Well, I think that Alex brought a good point up earlier in that uh, recent events this week in the political landscape have actually created opportunities for us because it's critical that we take action now in the adaptation community. And as I mentioned, the adaptation community for the forum is stronger and better connected than ever before. And the networks are really, you know, working very well together. And so it's a great opportunity for us to reach out to these partners and let them know now is the time for action. We've got to stay together, stay strong, move the adaptation, you know, um, uh, initiative forward. And again, reaching out to even some of those private sectors, they're already implementing adaptation activities into their business plans and business models. And, uh, so our business panel, as Alex alluded to, we've got some Fortune 500 companies from the Minnesota area that we're really excited that are going to be speaking on that panel. And they're very excited because they recognize that their sustainability efforts really are more adaptation efforts and it impacts them across the board as well. And yes, NGOs and agency partners, I think we're going to have to move on this quickly because as the new administration comes in, we might have a little bit of a uh, expiration date on some fundraising opportunities out there, but we're definitely going to be moving quickly on this. I guess follow up when it comes to the federal government employees that are interested in uh, attending this. I actually was supposed to go to the first one, and that was in Denver, right? That was the first one. That was yes. in Denver, and mm-hmm. it was the you know the really at the height of the f- financial crisis, and they shut down all government travel. And so I, I, for you guys, and I think it was still a pretty big success. Uh, forum, but you know that a lot of federal people could not make it. And so you guys are probably thinking about that. And it hasn't gotten to the point where, you know, you're shutting down travel, but you never know the first six months. It's just, you know, you might have executive orders, like we're going to just reassess what travel and what kind of travel. And so is there any kind of feedback you can give out to federal listeners that, you know, hopefully this is still an event that they're going to be able to attend? 
Well, I can take on a, a part of it, and I'm sure that Alex can speak to it more as well. But one of the things that we've done over the years is we've really worked at securing travel support for a cross-section of all of our participants. So whether you're from an underserved community, an NGO, or an agency partner, we do have travel support opportunities that are out there. We did not have that so much in 2013, and we really put it into play in 2015, and we've been very fortunate to have some great foundation support for 2017. So we will have some travel support opportunities out there in one form or another to we're hoping about 30 percent of the attendees but you know that's a pretty big goal for us uh but that is our goal right now one of the things that we've also done in 2015 for the first time we negotiated a contract so that we had pre-forum meeting space that was available to our adaptation partners whether you're an agency partner again tribal ngo private sector foundation partner And we secured this space so that these groups could gather and they could actually have their annual events or um, working groups or perhaps training sessions that were related to climate change before the event. And that afforded some of them the opportunity to attend those events the day before the forum and then attend the forum. So it was kind of a bookended opportunity for them to justify their travel because they were actually traveling for their own organizations or agencies and then able to attend the forum. So that's one way we're uh, securing this pre-forum meeting space again for 2017. We secured space for 24 partners to come. And so it's kind of amazing. We're anticipating about 600 people to be there the day before the forum even begins based on this uh, pre-forum space that we've reserved for them. Uh, Alex? Yeah, no, that's that's good, Wendy Kay. And we're hoping that they're still all coming to travel because a lot of them are um, our government partners that have secured some of that room. But but not just government partners, also, you know, um, you know, Bureau of Indian Affairs and Nature Conservancy, the of course, NOAA, which is um, government partners, as well as the USDA hubs, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a lot of things going on. So pe- people are still going to have to do their business um, and continue meeting and continue gathering. So we hope that having those pre-forum meetings um, will allow them justify the travel for them to stay through the forum. The other thing we have already started talking internally, Doug, because it might become a reality, just like it was in 2013. A lot of our federal um, partners had to cancel last minute is maybe doing things with um, live live streaming looking at that possibility. So we're going to be talking to federal partners in the next coming weeks. Is that something that they might want to sponsor so that they also can um, be part of the forum, whether it's in person or remotely? So we're trying to be as creative as possible and as adaptable as possible, because, again, there will be some challenges ahead. Um, We're also going to start looking, um, again, for more of those funds for travel support and hoping that we can bring as many people as possible to the forum. Okay, that's good advice. And so my own advice from experience, if you federal employees out there are listening, you know how ridiculous the travel process can be, depending on what bureau you're with. Get your permission in now, because sometimes when you lock these things in now, even if they make a change in policy, you've locked in, they've allocated the budgeting for the travel, and so you just increase your odds of being able to go. So if you're thinking of putting it off, do it now. You know how ridiculous those systems are. So I encourage you to ask for travel. I mean, sometimes the feds, they do it nine months in advance. Do it. Don't wait around anymore. Don't wait till January 20th or whatever the date's coming. So my advice based on experience. A couple more questions for you guys. And this is about creating greater awareness. So I think you're looking to have about six, 700 people at this event. 
And as you know, the adaptation universe is much bigger than it was even two years ago in St. Louis. And, you know, I had a guest on a couple weeks ago. I haven't published it yet, but he's academic at Harvard and just an amazing guy working on adaptation, talking a lot about resilience. And, I mean, the literature that he's produced, I mean, this is something I'd love to share with a lot more people in the natural resource universe because he does more built environment, architectural design, but it's all about adaptation. And he had never heard of the forum. And this guy is connected in the government, and he's just uber connected. And I just, I'm thinking, something's there's these orbits. I think natural resource people have really gravitated toward the forum. But you know, people out there listening to this podcast, this forum's a great thing. It's a great networking event, and there really isn't a lot of adaptation events for people to go to. And so, I just okay. encourage you guys. You know, you know how big the universe is, and it's it's not always easy to kind of get the word out. But um, I I was surprise and, and obviously it's nothing on him he's obviously going to events and everything so anyway your thoughts um yeah so um in 2015 i think we only had one or two sessions on architecture and design i'm happy to say that there is actually 13 um submissions on architecture and design right now so it is kind of a growing field but it is hard to reach everybody so that's why we're here talking to you thank you doug for having us and yeah, spread the word. The word. Um, we want to ensure that all sectors, all topics are included in the forum. And there's still time to submit proposals. Um, right now, we have the call for proposals for oral presentations is still open until December 16th. So again, there's still time to contribute. There's still time to um, submit for oral presentations, for tools, which is any digital tools that you might be using in your field and adaptation, and also for posters if you want to present your work in a poster format. Again, let me repeat that. December 16th is that deadline, and a lot of you know that you can get justification to go to these events if you're doing a poster or an oral presentation or even at least submitting it. It kind of gives you more justification. So take advantage of that opportunity. December 16th deadline. And I'll have those in the show notes too. Just people read those as they get to the podcast, but I would hate for people to lose that window. All right. I want to kind of shift here a little bit before, before we wrap this up, but I wanted to just turn the tables and I wanted you guys to interview me. And I want you to ask me questions that you think you should ask that I was a conference goer in St. Louis. Now, what would you ask me as I talk about that event that would give people sort of inspiration that they want to go to Minnesota? I'll take a first shot at it. So, Doug, what was the most important takeaway from the 2015 National Adaptation Forum? What did you take away and what did you bring back to your work from the lessons learned from the forum? Good question. Okay, I think probably recognizing the diversity of people working in adaptation. It was very encouraging, even though I I I talked to Laura Hansen a bit about this, the natural resource people gravitate toward it, but the event still attracted a lot of people outside of that. So, you know, you walk away thinking, I can learn from these other sectors, and I just, you know, you're, you're getting business cards. And so, to me, that was great. It was eye-opening, because I think sometimes in your own field, you get a little bit stale in your thinking, and so there's a lot of energy interacting with other sectors, because there's conferences that people, you just always are dealing with your own people. Adaptation is kind of that opportunity as you're growing to kind of say there are different people, like, you know, this pr- professor came on and I just, it blew my mind some of the, the, the literature that he's produced. So that's, that's partly, well, that's probably the biggest thing I took away from it. Wonderful. Um, Wendy Kay, you want to give him a, a question? 
Sure. Um, regarding our networking opportunities at the forum, did you feel that in, in addition to the existing partners that you may have already been working with in the adaptation community, that you were able to connect with new networks and move those forward after the forum? And of course, I'd love to ask you how the food is, Doug, because it's one of the big things that everybody talks about this event. And I know it's not adaptation related, but we have you captive audience for three days. And so it's always a question that you can edit out, but I would love to know personally anyway. Oh, that's so funny because I was totally going to mention the food. The food was spectacular. Well done with the food in, in St. Louis. It was really yummy. It was fresh food. It was a lot of vegetables. I'm just, of course, I can't remember everything, but I do remember the food standing out. And I think what, as part of the conference registration, you get breakfast and lunch. Is that right? That's correct, yes. And we have beverage service all day. Right. Yeah, and I think you, you weren't necessarily even like providing like Cokes and all that kind of Maybe I'm wrong, but that, a lot of that junk food, I think you had more healthy options, and so that was that was nice too. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going back. I'm looking at the visual, and I like the space. I think the space was in some ways a little tight, but I think it was helping you guys get what you wanted where we were all going to interact a lot more. You know, there was like that main kind of hallway where all the tables were. Mm-hmm. So I just felt like, you know, that's where I would go hang out. That's where I'd go have a coffee. That's where I'd, you know, look at my phone. And so that that was nice, and it sounds like you're trying to recreate that in Minnesota. We are. We are actually going to have a Monday meet and greet like we did in 2015 in St. Louis. And we're really excited because this year we're going to have regional, national and global adaptation partners represented. And they're going to be giving away their, you know, uh, Adaptation Academy Awards, as it were, represented to different organizations that they work with regionally, nationally and globally. So we're really excited about that. So hopefully you'll be able to attend that event. And then, of course, we have our regular Tuesday networking event, which will take place at the forum. When I was at the Society for Conservation Biology, we did this thing, adaptation speed dating. And so I'm assuming you've probably done something similar or whatever, but you just get together, you know, you spend a few minutes sharing what you're doing, adaptation, and if you've got a drink in your hand, all the better. So it sounds like your networking events are probably going to be doing that. But if even a little bit of structure, that helps the kind of shy people to kind of leap right in and just meet as many people as possible. So it's a great idea. Well, what, an additional question, I think you're just saying, uh, leaving the, the, the network, I mean, I felt like I had quite a bit of networking opportunities. And, there, you know, there's side events, too. Like, you get invited to this organization has their own kind of happy hour that not everybody goes to. Um, I got to go to a few of those. And so, no, it, it, it was really good. I think maybe toward the end, and I just think that's true of every conference, you just you, you felt like not people didn't even leave, but this, it just thinned out in a way. And so... Ways of just encouraging. I just went to this podcast conference, and it was just a small, but, I mean, we were constantly together, and the amount of information sharing in between individuals was it was the best I've ever been at. So um, I would just love that the three days at an adaptation forum, you, you take advantage of it. So I mean, it sounds like you're thinking that like that. I mean, there's there's only so much you can do with dealing with over, you know, 500 people. So, but, yeah, just if you can, as much as you can encourage those kind of things, that would be great. Great feedback. Thank you. And we are anticipating 900, maybe 1,000 people at this event. We're anticipating just 600 the day before for preform gatherings. So it's it's going to be a rather large undertaking, With hopefully with everybody coming that we believe is going to come. It'll be pretty the biggest event so far for us. Well, I think we, we, we're going to stay in touch. And Laura, I think, is going to come back on with uh, someone else. And we're going to talk, I guess, more detail because you'll have settled – on you know the panel presentations and thinking January and February to talk more about the form again and of course I'm planning to be there you know knock on wood but uh, I will be doing some podcasting there doing some walk around interviews and such to uh, just because you know that for me my own selfish desires there's going to be all sorts of cool people there and just talking about the event and what it means to them so 
Very cool. Um, okay, I feel like we've covered a lot of. Is there anything that I missed that you wanted to share? Any last thoughts or just you know like a cheerleading? This is uh, to me, it's a great event. But any last thoughts, Alex or Mindy K? Sure, I'll do one last thought. The one of the things that we started in 2013, it actually came from one of the practitioners in Denver. They're like, well, you know, here we are talking about adaptation. What are we doing? We're all traveling somewhere. What are we doing for our travel offsets? So we started in Denver. We gave, we gathered some money on the last day and we gave it to a bike sharing program up in Denver. Um, last year in 2015, um, we partnered with M-Slice, a community group doing adaptation on the ground in the east side of St. Louis. And this year, we're really happy to do our travel offset project, which is with the Mississippi Park Connection. A local nonprofit is working with the City of St. Paul Forestry Program and the Science Museum to do a preformed gravel bed nursery um, tree planting. So this is an adaptation project that is actually replacing climate comprised um, ash trees that are dying because of climate change. And so we will be doing that as a pre-form event. Um, so forum volunteers can come and do the planting. It's right by the Science Museum, which is right across the River Center. So we're really excited to partner with them and do something, do a project to the city that you're going to travel with as your travel offset um, project, or people can also donate um, to the project itself. Very cool. Wendy Kay, any last thoughts? Uh, early bird registration is open, and it's open until April 2nd, so we've already had about 20 people register for the forum, so don't hesitate to, you know, make your reservations today. Uh, travel support will, the applications for travel support will open at the beginning of January, and we will have opportunities for folks to volunteer. It'll probably take place um, a little bit into 2017. We'll be announcing those opportunities, but we definitely encourage students to apply, anybody across the adaptation community, really, to apply because we'll have um, plenty of opportunities for folks to be volunteering and helping us run the forum. Excellent. And I guess my final thoughts to people out there listening, this really is a great event. You need to recognize that adaptation is a real field. It's an emerging field, and sharing information is just going to make your work better. And this is just a fantastic opportunity to do that. And just the, the energy at these events, there's just a lot of positive energy. People dealing adaptation are just excited because it is an emerging field, and you just, you're just you gathering a whole bunch of them together. So you're just going to walk around really happy with the people that you encounter. So that's my two cents. And you too, thanks for coming on. And I will, like I said, I'm going to share on the, the show notes if you guys have links and other things. You know, of course, I'll have links to the forum. But if there's anything else like that, uh, I'll, I'll include that. But uh, thanks again for coming on. Thank thanks you. for having us. See you in St. Paul in May. All yep, right. Thanks, Doug. All right, everybody. That's America Adapts, the climate change podcast. It is now time for another session of the Adaptation and Wine Power Hour and it has been several weeks, and people have missed him fiercely. Tim Watkins, are you out there? I am. I'm so glad to know that people have missed me fiercely. Uh, you know, I, I want to talk about the booze in a second here, but uh, something big, really big, happened this week. Uh, what was it? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. So it's time to talk about the election, I guess. Yeah, this is sort of the election episode. The previous sessions, we talked about it a bit, and I thought I'd bring Tim on and we talk about it, and. There's any number of ways we could talk about this election. I think everyone sort of, when it comes from climate change perspective, thinks it's going to be really bad news. And I certainly don't want to sugarcoat things, but it, it could be really bad news. But I'd also maybe like to look for some silver linings. 
and we might not find any, but let's let's think like that. But first off, what is your post-election drink of choice? <laughs> it's not strong enough, I'll tell you that. No, I'm having um, a 2015 Santa Julia Malbec, um, the Santa Julia Vineyards from Argentina, and it's quite nice. It's a little on the sweet side for Malbecs, frankly, but um, I, I, it's needed. That's all I can say. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not drinking wine. I've got a glass of rubbing alcohol and soda water. And <laughs> it's, it's still not strong enough. <laughs> Just put a little salt on the rim, Doug. It'll be better. I, I, yeah, I got some salt in my hand, and I'm licking it, and I'm taking a swig, and it's it's not doing its job. So it's that kind of election. Maybe we should talk about our election night drinking. Oh, I don't want to get into the election night. That this okay. this is America Daps. It's a positive podcast, and that's right. People, people listening out there, there is a way forward, and we're going to talk about those things. And you know, Tim and I just we have these brief chats, but I, we thought we'd just really quickly kind of, you know, what are some of the climate change implications? And you know, we're here to talk about adaptation too. And I guess that to me is one way of looking at okay. The things that we heard on the campaign trail were not good with climate change. There's no way to sugarcoat them. That's not being partisan. You know, I guess things like climate change is a hoax and it's made up by the Chinese. And I think policy was a moving target for one of the uh, campaigns. And so maybe that's one way to look at it and it won't be as bad as we think it is. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, by which I think you mean that uh, Trump – changed his tune on many issues over the course of the campaign, right? He was against the Iraq Iraq war, but he was for the Iraq war and so many other issues. He just reversed himself, and it was hard to know what Trump really thought. But I, you know, I believe him when he says he's not a scientist and he's not into the climate change thing and climate change is a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese. I think that's... Whether he believes the hoax part or not, he certainly does not think that climate change is something that really needs to be dealt with through federal government and policy. And when you look at the sorts of people he's thinking about adding to his to his cabinet, I think that that bears that out. So, yeah, it's pretty negative. Well, but I- we're looking for silver linings, right? Silver linings, silver <laughs> molecules, anything. Silver molecules. So one of the things that he has said he wants to do in his first hundred days is um, start to launch a major uh, infrastructure program to repair and modernize the country's infrastructure, and presumably that will uh, boost job growth as well as that money gets spent. That, to me, suggests some possibilities for adaptation, depending on what local communities want to do with that money. And who knows how much the Trump administration would have a say over exactly what sorts of projects get done. But it wouldn't surprise me if that money gets channeled by states and local communities into fairly innovative uh, climate adaptation projects. Well, there was climate change integrated to the NEPA guidance, National Environmental Protection Act, which covers a lot of planning. It's just, mm. I never understood how strong that was, and that could go a long way of kind of outliving uh, President Obama. So, there, like you said, you know, when people are start doing transportation planning, you know, they're just the adaptation planning or thinking about what is hopefully baked in in some areas that it's it's just something they deal with. So, right. 
You know, one of the things that you and I have both agreed on, I think, from the outset of this uh, whole podcast series is really that uh, responding to climate change and being creative with adaptation is, is a great economic opportunity. And there are trillions of dollars to be made uh, in the private sector, certainly, for coming up with new ways both to mitigate and to adapt. And I you, say what you will about Trump, at some level, I think, you know, we don't have his tax returns, but at some level, supposedly, I think he's a decent businessman and uh, makes decisions and sees opportunities to make a buck. And I, I think that if the argument can be made to his administration that mitigation and adaptation are ways to produce jobs and generate revenue and um, strengthen the, the economy uh, and strengthen the livelihood of those communities that he might listen. Yeah, yeah, and I think getting people in there to talk about adaptation and tying into any sort of investment, um, it, it, it just creates an interface to have those conversations. So, yeah, mm-hmm. knock on wood on, on that approach. Right. Well, what else? What else? Some other silver molecules in this. <laughs> that might be it. That might be it. That might be it. Well, there's a whole lot of things going on, and I think it remains to be seen. Uh, you know, President Obama used a lot of executive orders and, you know, rulemaking within the executive branch to do things on adaptation. And, you know, that is a concern. You know, you, it, it might just – they might be asked to sort of just stop doing those things. But we've had three or four years of the federal government engaging with states and local governments about these things that, you know, the – they might not be willing to engage with the federal government if they're not sort of acknowledging these planning processes, you know, especially adaptation planning. So you, you would you would hope that's too much in the weeds potentially to be a, a, a target, and if there is some sort of an internal political witch hunt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there's going to be a witch hunt. Well, you know, things sort of happen, and I think you know, not to be sort of devious about this, that. The, the civil servants within the federal agencies, they go through different administrations, both parties, and, you know, sometimes there's dark times of, like, policymaking, but at the same time, they know how to play defense, and right. you hope that they're going to be, if really bad ideas come into the administration, into the federal agencies, that the civil servants will play defense in, in, a, in a good way. So I, I'm that's what I'm hoping is my own experience in the federal government, that that can happen. Sure. Yeah. More than one way to skin a cat, right? And you can package the work that you do in the federal government in ways that are uh, very much advancing climate change uh, response, uh, but spin it and sell it to the administration and its leadership in different sorts of terms. And it's a game. And, you know, and I think I think all the federal agencies play that game in various ways under various administrations and congresses. Well, I don't think I've shared it with you yet, but I got invited down to a conference in Florida. Uh, did I mention this yet? Um, as You media. did, yeah, offline. With what, Is it the business community or something in Florida? Right, or, there's a yep. business mm-hmm. and climate change conference that I, the, the or, conference organizers invited me to come down. And so I haven't been to such a conference before, and I'm curious. It might be just really good timing that here's the business community coming together to talk about climate change and, you know, you would hope adaptation and the – like you said, the business opportunities associated with it. 
will be a common theme, and I'm going to go around and interview people and um, was also asked to invite some climate scientists to attend to be there as resources to the conference goers. And so, yeah, it might be a reinvigorating kind of session for me as, you know, we do head into a new administration of, like, is the business community already past any sort of, like, skepticism or at least an element of the business community? Well, I think they are. They're so heavily invested, I think. In you know reducing their carbon footprint or um, stepping up their efficiency or reducing their financial risk to climate change because they know and especially the ones that work internationally or in our multinational corporations, you know this is the one powerful country and major economy where political leaders reject climate change, but the rest of the world gets it, and those corporations have to do business in those countries and. They're well invested in responding productively and thoughtfully and, you know, on the basis of good scientific evidence, uh, to climate change. And I, I guess that's another little silver lining here is even if the Trump administration backs off of climate change and pulls the plug on funding and all that sort of thing, there's already so much momentum within the economy outside of the petroleum products industry, I suppose, to keep things going, right? And it's not like the president and the administration is the only voice. Obviously, they make policy decisions that have massive implications, but uh, there are so many other players in our economy and in our society who really do get it and do care and are doing good things and will continue to do good, good things. And some of them are really going to put the pressure on on the Trump administration. And if he really listens to business, he should be open to their ideas. Well, I also think is, you know, the political appointees and the representatives of government just fan out to conferences and meetings. It's 10 years ago, there might be a deference to the government's position on climate change, but they're going to go into meetings and they're just going to get blank stares if there's outright skepticism to climate change. They're going to figure out it's really awkward. And, you know, I'm not yeah. naive to think. <laughs> awkward. Right. It's just. Yep. The, and. A lot of them don't want to be considered silly or irrelevant, and so yep. there's going to have to be some shifting. Yeah, right. <laughs> don't you want to be a fly on the wall at some of those meetings, you know, where <laughs> some representative of the Trump administration walks into a room full of state, you know, emergency response managers and planners? <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, that would be kind of... There, there might be some fun conversations out there that I would love to to hear. I hope they get recorded. They're, oh, I'm sure in the years ahead we're going to have all sorts of great news-breaking items that kind of horrify us, but uh, that is what it is. All right, I think we should wrap this up. I, I saw plenty of silver molecules there. Um, I definitely want to acknowledge that this is a sobering moment in climate change history. It's There's no point in sugarcoating it. But at the same time, I think a few of the things we talked about here, that there are pathways ahead, that we can keep doing what we're doing, and we're going to keep using this podcast to talk about adaptation and climate change in general. So any final thoughts, Mr. Tim? Um, no. <laughs> Still shell-shocked from the election. I, I get yeah. it. I, can we play the sad trombones? You know, womp, 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 womp. Yeah, um, I'll find some good theme music for this. You know, we'll, we'll see. All right. On that note, thanks, Tim. Right. Appreciate it. Take care, Doug. All right. Thanks, everybody. This is America Daps, the Climate Change Podcast. 
Hey, everyone. That's a wrap for American Apps, the climate change podcast. Thanks to my guests, James Stilwell, Alex Score, and Wendy K. DeWeese. This was a special election episode. I hope you guys learned a few things. I certainly did. Please consider visiting the Facebook page, and please consider subscribing on iTunes. That's the best way to get these podcasts. Also, if you have ideas for guests or just comments about the podcast, I can be reached at americadaps at gmail.com. Lots of people email me. I love it when I get an email from you guys, so please just reach out. Also, America Daps will be in Fort Lauderdale at the end of the month. This is November. To um, participate in the Business and Climate Change Conference that's occurring there. We were invited to cover it as media, and so I'll go around and interview people at the conference. Very excited about that. Hey, if you're in the area, look me up. I'd be very excited to to meet some listeners down in Florida. Uh, Next week, I have a very special guest, Dr. Michael Mann, the famous climatologist of hockey stick fame. I'm very excited about this episode. He has written a book, The Madhouse Effect, and I'll be talking with him about the book and his own own thoughts about the election of Donald Trump. Until next time, this is America Daps, the climate change podcast.